we will go into our study for tonight, which will begin from verse 12 of Jude. Um, so what Jude is doing now is that he's showing us the consequences of, of walking in a morally decadent manner or despising the justice of God. And he's also showing us the consequence of violating spiritual authority. Now, we said last week that spiritual authority our authority itself is the most important principle in the in the creation because this creation as we have it came to be by the authority of God. There was darkness upon the face of the deep and God exercised authority and that was how everything came to be so that everything is held up by the authority of God. And then the question then is, what happens when we violate God's authority? Do we get away with it, right? Of course, we see the first person who attempted to violate spiritual authority Lucifer, who became Satan himself. So we can definitely see that there is some kind of judgment involved, but it's not particularly clear to us as humans the severity, right, of violating God's authority, and both corporately and individually, because like we see all through the Psalms, it's as though the wicked prospers. The wicked lives long and they continue long enough in their wickedness that we wonder if there's any any consequences to violating God's authority. That's what Jude will touch on in the next verses that we will read, and that's what we would like to focus on, the question of, of judgment, spiritual judgment, eternal judgment. Um, part of why I wanted us to take our time to look at it is that Jude said we need to spend time talking about our common salvation, right? And if you read Hebrews chapter 6, where the writer of Hebrews was listing some of the common principles or the basic foundational principles of the doctrine of Christ. The, the, the principle of eternal judgment is if the foundation that the writer of Hebrews expects that every believer must be grounded in. And like we saw, we, we know that in our generation, there is, um, yes, most of the foundational material is lacking. And so it's important for us to spend some time to, to, to have an aging discussion tonight around that okay so sammy can you help us read from verse 12 to verse 13. okay jude verse 12. Uh, these are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear serving only themselves they are cloud without water carried about by the winds late autumn trees without fruit twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Verse 13, raging seas, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Wow. Very colorful, poetic language, yeah? So Jude um, borrows six metaphors to describe um, false teachers essentially and the first thing he says is that there are spots in your love feast while they feast with with you without fear which we said um, indicates to us that the greatest danger from the church usually doesn't come from outside the church right it comes from within the church satan works over time if you like to ensure that he plants tears amongst god's seed so that the fact that somebody um, is running something that looks like a church that has the name of church in it and probably even uses the name of Jesus 
is not a validation, right, of the authenticity. You need to run other checks like we saw last week. So it says this, these people are part of your love feast, meaning that they partake of the communion with you. I know that in some of our denominations, we, we have a very um, substantiative view of the communion. So much, some of us, some um, denominations believe that the, that the body and the, or rather the bread and the wine practically represent the physical body of Jesus and you know, his blood. And because of that, they, they tend to think it as something holy. And because of that, they don't permit everybody to take it. <laughs> but this category of false teachers, they've gone beyond those limitations. They are able to freely participate of what you might consider holy. The things that you think, oh, if someone does them, God will you know, rain down his wrath from heaven and destroy them. But somehow they are able to participate in your feast. And I think one thing we can take out from here is that when Paul tells us that Jesus is coming for a pure church, right? Without spot and without wrinkle. This is what this is part of what he's referring to, that it is inevitable that there will be some amongst us who are either false believers, meaning that they were never converted before. This is a very common problem in the church today, that a lot of people came into the church without meeting Christ. They came in because of the prosperity message. They were told that God could solve all their problems or that God could heal their bodies or whatever, but they never met Christ. And so when the wind comes, you begin to realize that, okay, there's no roots or foundation here. So there are such false believers, but there are also believers who walk away from the faith. Like we've mentioned before, in, in our time in America, we have a group of people who call themselves the ex evangelicals and not only do they reject that denomination they reject the very tenets of our faith and some of them try to change it even um through what you might call progressive christianity this is a whole can of worms which if you have the bandwidth for you can open up by going online to check up on progressive christianity and ex-evangelicals but i personally don't find it very edifying <laughs> to look at but the point is that they are believers who were once believers, who were once saved, who turned their back on Jesus. Um, and the other metaphors that Jude uses is showing us how we can identify false believers and how we can begin to um, sense the smoke, you know, from afar when we begin to show some signs of not um, taking our faith as seriously as we should. He says they are clouds without water, carried about by winds, right? The thing that you know about clouds is that when the clouds come, you expect rain, right? You expect a downpour, but then they are without water, meaning that there's so much promise, right? But there's no fruit. I don't know if you've been there before where you were, you were wooed into a certain church, wooed into a certain denomination by so much external brouhaha, <laughs> if you like. And then when you stayed long enough, you realize that there's so much excitement here. There's so much activity here but but there's no fruit i've been here one year and it's as though my life has gone in a circle and i'm back at exactly the same spot i cannot measure any particular growth of course i don't recommend that you use your life to test out what james what jude is saying but that's one of the effects of sitting down under false teaching right is that you will not be grounded there'll be no convictions it says that they are not just clouds that are carried about by winds Sorry, they're not just clouds without water. They are carried about by winds. Of course, this language mirrors Paul's language in Ephesians chapter 4, 
that we, do, we, we will no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You know, so every now and again, there are winds of doctrine that come to present something outlandish, you know, or even present something ridiculous. And then it's in those moments that you realize who is planted and who is not. And so you need to take a stick stock, right, of your Christian life and ask yourself, how, how often is it that the wind of doctrine blows me off my feet? You know, I've been under a certain ministry or place or teaching or whatever it is that we subscribe to these days. Um, in what trajectory has my life gone, right? When you see some false teachers, there is so much promise, so much activity, but nothing underneath. And that's what the other part metaphor portrays, right? They are late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead. Right? So it means that, it, that the fruits died on the tree and then they now fell off so that they died two times and pulled up by the roots. Jesus said in, I think, Matthew chapter 15, when he was addressing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, that whatsoever is not planted by my father will be pulled up. Right, so um, fruitfulness in the Christian life, and when we talk about fruitfulness, we're not talking about um, materi materialistic fruitfulness, but we're talking about the fruit that only the Spirit of God can produce. Right, the fruit of patience, the fruit of long suffering. Right, the fruits of true, genuine, undiluted power. Those fruits are a product of abiding in Jesus. So that if you say that you are abiding, but then there are no fruits, it's a call for evaluation, right? And then it describes them as raging waves of the sea, forming up their own shame. So this is another, I guess, compliment of false teachers is that there is always a grandiose show. It's always about the show, right? It's always about the blending of colors. It's always about the externalities. It's a, it's a prideful way of life. It's as though validation comes from everything external it says they are wandering stars from whom for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness a wandering star obviously is a star that has been displaced from its original colony from its original constellation and it's possible that a christian can be a wanderer right going from one ministry to another going from one help center to another you know Going from one philosophy to another, even today you believe this about your salvation. <laughs> Tomorrow you believe that um, perhaps even going from one city to another, going from one job to another, wandering without any aim. So anytime you observe these symptoms, as it were, around you, that's a sign that what you're subscribing to is false. And God, in his faithfulness, will ensure Right, that he gives you the first sign of judgment in a sense. The judgment of God on the believer sometimes shows up in the fact that God allows certain things that are not of him <laughs> to be empty, right? To be clouds without water, to be to be trees without fruit, so that if you really press into him and you're seeking him, you realize that um, wait a second, I'm you know, on the wrong path. So these are the metaphors that Jude is using to describe these false teachers. So in a sense, 
the fact that their ways do not produce any fruit is a kind of judgment on those ways, right? So that it's not so much about, oh, how does what I'm doing right now make me feel? But it's more about what fruit is it going to produce? And if I'm conscious of the fruits that are being produced, that will help me not to waste my time in cycles, essentially. Okay. Um, I want to hear your thoughts about this. What do you think? Um, is there something that strikes you more here? It's interesting how their judgment is in their futility. Um, but something seems confusing to me. Uh, yeah. So I, I think maybe I should just point it out. Uh, you know, well, maybe our own sense of um, assessment mm -hmm. and, and maybe the way we perceive their, their operations or their success may differ with respect to God's point of view. You know, but you know, the things that were listed in this verse 12 and 13 are things that look good, but eventually results to nothingness, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm guessing this nothingness, is it an eventuality or is it, does it already mean the current state of their existence? Because some of these people, when we see them in our, in our <laughs> assemblies and in our denominations, this verse 12 and 13 does not really capture because it looks like they are the ones being popular. They are the ones people gather around. They are the ones that it looks at like everything is working for. So if this verse 12 and 13 is their judgment, I'm, I'm, forgive, forgive me if I'm wrong, is it that this will be their eventual end? Or does it mean that in all their pomp and display behind the scenes, this is what it actually is? Yeah, you're actually correct. Um, this points to their future end, right? Um, and I think this is a mirror of, is it Psalm 73? I don't know if you remember Psalm 73, where this Psalm is, the writer Asaf says that I was envious of the foolish, you know, yes. when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And it troubled him. In fact, he said that he began to doubt his faith so much that he made up his mind that he's not going to utter his doubts so that it doesn't affect the generation that's to come. And then he was in this state of confusion. And then he said, until I went into the temple of the Lord. And then I saw their end. You know, I saw that you have set them in slippery places. So what Jude is presenting to us is a similar judgment, right? It's a futuristic judgment. It's, it's spiritual insight, essentially. He's saying that, can you not see that everything that one can amass on earth as it were through lascivious living, right? through a life that is not submitted to authority because when you choose to go the way of Cain or the way of Balaam, usually your profit is more instant, right? The way of unrighteousness is usually faster than the way of righteousness, definitely. You can always have proof quicker in that sense. But what Jude is showing us is a futuristic, which is going to become clear as we read the next two verses is, He's giving us spiritual insight into their true state. Right? He's saying, hey, don't be deceived by the show. Right? There's no water in this cloud. And it might take until they pass out from this world and meet God face to face for you to realize that. But you don't need to wait till that time. You can, you can see through all of this, right? That there's nothing in it. Yeah. 
Um, however, what I was trying to point out earlier as well, which we would also subsequently see is that the judgment of God um, is a continuous process for the church, right? It's as though the closer you are to God, the more you are exposed to his judgment. The Bible describes him as a consuming fire and naturally whatever elements are closer to fire feel the heat much more. So I, there is no nation that went through the kind of judgment that Israel went through throughout biblical history, you know, and the only reason that happened is because they were God's choice, right? He says, this is my inheritance. Um, so that there is a sense in which judgment is continuous. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, that now judgment begins in the house of God. I'm saying that to say that it is possible, right, that believers who are true and who are genuine can be drawn away, right? And the only way, sometimes that God can, can pull them back is true judgment. And that judgment itself lies in the fact that there is a futility in your ways. In fact, that judgment is a, is a kind of mercy. There is a futility in your ways so that if you still have any pause left in you, you can sense that, no, something is wrong. You know, it's just like when the Bible tells us that um, the prodigal son, he came to his senses. You know, if he didn't, if he didn't degenerate very quickly, if you like, right? If if he didn't pompously spend everything all at once, he may never have arrived at that state. But the mercy of God allowed him to arrive at zero very quickly so that he could see um, um, the foolishness of his ways and he could come to his senses and go back to his father's house. And that is one thing we can look out for in our lives, right? that many times when we ignore the voice of God, because that's the first way that God brings his judgments to us. You know, if you read the Psalms, you will see that the word of God has different names in the Psalms, right? It's called your law. It's called your statuses, right? It's called his judgments. The judgments of God are captured in the word of God. And when God wants to bring you help, he utters his voice to you. And so you tell yourself that I knew I shouldn't have done this thing. Something told me. But you see, because the voice of God didn't have authority at that point to restrain you and to put you on the path of the will of God, the only option that God has left is the discipline of process. I don't know if what I'm saying makes any sense. Where God then allows you to go through a process that unveils to you the foolishness of your ways and you repent. So that's the sense in which this judgment is present tense, but present tense only to those whom God still has an interest in. Does that help, Sami? Okay. Um, Mary has something in the chat about twice dead and wandering stars. Do you want to elaborate on that, Mary? Are you still here? Yes, yes. So for me, I just think that was to the being. I was just looking at the fact that there were stars, but the qualifying word wandering sort of made them out of place. And when you are trying to describe the twice dead, saying they they were off the tree first and they fell off, so that's like dying twice. So those are just things that stood out for me. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, 
yeah so so twice dead here refers to or rather indicates the fact that these people were actually once connected to the vine because some people read Jude and they still don't accept that it's possible for a believer to lose their salvation and when you read those commentaries you realize that they have to do a lot of work with the language to try to make it say what it is plainly not saying right um but twice dead clearly refers to the fact that um, these people have tasted of life and they have fallen out of it and we're going to see that in second peter as well and um, second peter is almost like a mirror maybe we should actually read it so that it doesn't look like what jude is saying is isolated right it's as though jude is inspired by the writings of peter um where should we start from it says verse 12 it says but these like natural brute brute beast made to be caught and destroyed they speak evil of things they do not understand so this is where they despise authority and they utterly perish in their own corruption right this is where this is their moral decadence essentially giving over to sensual to sensuality and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who counted pleasure to carouse in the daytime they are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin enticing unstable souls so their target the reason why we have to contend for the faith is not so much because of the strong but because of those amongst us who are not as strong as as you are essentially right they have a heart trained in covetous practices and are and are accursed children they have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam the son of Beor who loved the wages of unrighteousness but he was rebuked for his iniquity a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet these are wells without water clouds carried by tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever I came here to show us what Peter says from verse 18 down. For when they speak grace-welling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. So this is twice that is that I'm preaching something that's not a reality in my life. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. This is a law in the spirit. When you want to check if you are free or not, you check what is it that conquers me? What is it that overcomes me? That thing is my master, essentially. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. So this is what Jude means by twice dead, that the people he's referring to, right, had escaped the pollutions of the world because they had a saving knowledge of Jesus. They knew Jesus as Lord and as Savior. But then they became entangled again. And not only were they entangled, they were overcome by their lust says that the latter end is worse than the beginning. It says, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness 
than having known it to turn from the holy commandments delivered to them. Yeah. Does that clarify things? Mary? Yes, it does. Thank you. Okay. Cool. So now going to the practicalities of um, spiritual judgment then, right? As we move on, verse 14 and verse 15. Sami? Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly, among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Yeah, thank you, Sammy. So it's very clear from this verse, verses that God will judge, right? He is a judge and he will judge. And we've seen how that judgment even can even show up itself today, even though most of the time it is reserved for the future. And so my question before we unpack what, the, before we unpack the prophecy of Enoch is, why do you think spiritual judgment is so important, right? It sounds harsh, you know, these words. Sounds very critical even, you know, sounds very damning. <laughs> Nobody wants to be on the receiving end of these kinds of pronouncements. But yet it is captured in the New Testament. There are two very plain witnesses to it. More than that, but we've only seen to today, Peter and Jude in the New Testament. It seems the same way spiritual authority is fundamental to how creation is ordered and structured. Judgment to God is so important and he doesn't want any of us to, to ever lose sight of the importance of judgment. Why do you think is that that's the case? What, so, what, what necessitates judgment? What, what's the goal of judgment? Just, I would just like to hear your thoughts. Okay. Um, just drawing um, a string from last week, you know, we pointed out that God's priority is order in his government. And that is the ultimate aim of judgment, to restore order and uh, to also... Exactly. Yeah. Sorry, continue. Okay, to restore order by rewarding iniquity and rebellion according mm. to their own efforts and kind. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, thank you, Sami. I think that hits the nail on the head, right? If spiritual authority is the central principle by which creation stands, then violations, if, if creation is going to have a future, right? Violations of spiritual authority have to be judged. Now, when man sinned against God, the Bible says that we fell short of the glory of God. What that means is that today, when you look at creation, the glory of God is obscured, right? Because of the fall of man. So, you can see that there's beauty and glory in creation, but you can also see how much that beauty and glory is tainted, right? By, by creation itself and by man, right? And creation is the biggest evangelist in the universe that convinces those who believe that there's a God, but creation is also the reason why those <laughs> who do not believe that there's a God hold on to that. So there is an obscuring of the glory of God. And so the first reason why God must judge and needs to judge 
is that he needs to restore his glory. Right? He needs to protect his glory. Now, the glory of God is designed to fill the earth, and that is what is designed to satisfy us. You know, the food you eat is not enough to satisfy you. And the proof of that is that when you wake up tomorrow, no matter how much you eat tonight, you still need more food. And you're going to continue in that cycle of vanity. Right? I'm not saying you shouldn't eat, but I'm just showing you that, um, that the cycle is not actually meant for satisfaction alone as much as it's meant for sustenance. The thing that sustains and satisfies and fulfills and completes man is the glory of God. Right? And that glory obviously has been mixed up and so God needs to recover his glory. And the only way to do that is to judge. If God does not judge, you're going to think that he's like you, you know, if you murder seven people, for example, and nothing happens to you, you're going to start convincing yourself that hmm, maybe God likes it, you know, maybe he doesn't actually care. God is a murderer, perhaps like you, until the judgment of God comes upon you. Right? And when the judgment of God is revealed, that's when you realize that, no, you are, you were dealing with a holy God in the first place. So judgment is necessary because of the glory of God. God must judge. The, the, the next reason why judgment is necessary is for our own enlightenment, you know. And this is the present continuous aspect of spiritual judgment, right? Which is that when, when you come to Christ, of course, Jesus asked you to come as you are, right? Maybe you were into some kind of illegal trade and you just gave your life to Christ. And in that whole experience, God didn't mention illegal trade. But you see, as you begin to walk with God, his light shines on it. And a day comes when God says, this thing is not part of my kingdom. And if God's judgment is revealed concerning a thing, it brings you light about that thing. And it brings you to the place where you know in the depth of your spirit, the perspective of God and that knowing is what empowers you to walk away from that thing. That's what Jesus meant by you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Right? It's not necessarily an intellectual appreciation of truth, which is why it's important that we do this Bible study for us to expose you to the possibilities of what God might be saying to you but it's even more important that you go back and brood on these studies until the light of God breaks out of it. And that's what the scriptures is, in a sense. The scriptures are a compendium of the judgment of God so that none of us walks in darkness, none of us walks in confusion. You know, Paul tells us, do you not know that you will judge the angels? Have you ever thought about that? How will you judge angels, you know? <laughs> Peter tells us ex expressly that the angels are more powerful than you. They, ex they excel in strength much more than you are. So how is it that you're going to judge angels? The only way that setup is possible is that God will have to first judge, right? And then the judgment of God will become the reference for your own judgment. That's why scripture says, judge nothing before it's time. Because it's only when the light of God shines upon a thing when the judgment of God is revealed about a thing, that you can know God's perspective and you can be empowered to be an executioner of that perspective. And finally, which I think by far is the most important reason why God must judge, is that that's how God will put a permanent end to sin. 
without judgment, sin will be perpetrated, even in the new creation. The only way that God can deal with the problem of sin once and for all is to judge, right? And it's because of the intensity, right, and the um, and the severity of judgment, like like Paul puts it in Romans chapter ten. I think it's because of the intensity and the severity of judgment that redemption becomes a necessity. Because you know, in judgment, there are no individual favorites. You know, if you stand before the court, the court doesn't look at you as an individual too much. You know, it doesn't bend the law because of you. Meaning that if you and I are to face God's judgment, we're not going to pass in all likelihood. We're not going to pass. We've seen this before in our previous studies. And the only way God could remedy that situation was that he put the cross between creation and judgment, right? So that today, if you come before the cross of Jesus and you can accept God's judgment, you in Christ are judged for your sin because the day that Christ comes to judge, nobody will be able to stand before him on that day. And that is what God wants for us to do, right, as Christians, that he wants us to resolve our issues with him here. That's what Paul tells us, that if we judge ourselves, we will not be judged, right? Um, and that's why God must judge, to permanently do away with sin. It's, it's, it's the severity of God's judgment and the eternality of God's judgment that will put an end to sin. Redemption alone is not enough to put an end to sin, as you can see in the life of believers who turn away from the faith, that the fact that God saved me is not actually enough to put an end to sin. It is the destruction, which is intense and severe, of God's judgment that will completely obliterate sin and usher in the kingdom of God that cannot be defiled. So that in a sense, even though judgment involves the terror of the Lord, it is something that the earth looks forward to. You know, the earth is looking forward to the day when it will be freed from the bondage of corruption. It's going to be a terrible day for the earth, but it's going to lead to a new creation. I wanted to lay that background before we now unpack what Enoch's prophecy is about so that it makes sense, right? Any questions or thoughts on this? Okay. So in the absence of no thoughts, let's unpack what Enoch's prophecy is about. So Enoch, the seventh from Adam, which of course doesn't mean the seventh man from Adam because it cannot be the seventh man from the genealogy in Genesis, but it means the seventh generation from Adam prophesied about these men also. So he's saying that Enoch prophesied and the prophecies of Enoch were captured in Jewish oral tradition, right? That's the way that Jude knows about this prophecy. Some people say that, oh, um, Jude subscribes to the Apocrypha and the Apocrypha is um, extra biblical stories that are not included in the biblical canon. But I can assure you that they're not included for good reason, right? So that's not the only source from which Jude would have known this story or this prophecy. There, was, there were very strong oral traditions in the ancient world. In fact, their oral traditions in many places were stronger than our written traditions because people didn't have writing material, so they had to remember a lot. You know, and they had to pass down that knowledge orally. Anyways, 
Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about this man, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints. Now, the first thing to know about the judgment of God is that the judgment of God is committed to one person, one man. It's a man that will judge the world, and his name is the Lord, right? His name is the man, Christ Jesus. I hope you know that the human nature that Jesus put on when he came, he didn't dissolve it when he ascended. He ascended to heaven as a man, and he's seated in heaven as a man, as the fulfillment of the man that God always wanted. That's why the Bible calls him the last Adam. So Jesus is the great divide of judgment. There is nobody that will be saved behind Jesus, apart from Jesus, outside of Jesus. He is the one to whom judgment is committed. There are not many ways to God like the progressives who want us to believe. There is one authority in the universe to whom judgment has been committed. And he's going to come with tens of thousands of his saints. We don't have time to press this, but his saints there is not believers, it's angels. There are many scriptures that would affirm that if you do a quick study of it. So he's going to come with his angels and he's coming to execute judgment, right? Judgment on all. So nobody's going to be left out. Not by age, not by gender, not by political status, economic status, social status. He's coming to judge all. He's coming to convict all who are ungodly among them and then the thing that makes the judgment terrible is that he's coming to convict them of all the ungodly deeds you know the man or the woman who rejects salvation often on the grounds of morality you know many of them believe that they are good people and that why would god judge me harshly when i'm a good person i do good things but like we saw when we did Romans, most of those people are guilty of conveniently forgetting their wrongs. But Jesus <laughs> will not forget. He will, he will judge all ungodly deeds. So that if sometimes I've gone to preach to Muslims who tell me that, you know, this your grace thing sounds too loose and too easy and too free. I'd rather face the judgment. <laughs> you know, it's almost like somebody saying that I'd rather take cancer. Nobody says that. You know, but the reason why people say that they rather take God's judgment is that they don't see the severity of it. It says all ungodly deeds, right, which they have committed in an ungodly way. And all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him, so that even if you manage to have been perfect, but yet you you swear with God's name, you curse with God's name, which which is like a pandemic in our generation. There's going to be a day of judgment because the glory of God has to be shown and eradicated and preserved, rather. God needs to enlighten us about what his perspective about evil is. And God needs to completely remove sin from, from his creation. It's important to realize that this judgment is eternal. That's what we saw in verse 13. It says that these wandering stars Darkness, the blackness of darkness is reserved for them forever. And you can go on and on about questions people have about this, which is, you know, how come that I live for 10 years, for example, 50 years, 
and I commit sin, you know, that is temporal. And then <laughs> God judges me eternally with fire. Right? I don't know if you've had this argument before. Why does God give eternal punishment for temporal sin? Well, the fallacy in the argument is that there's nothing like temporal sin, you know, at least not in God's eyes. Sin is never private. I think we've 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 tried to have this um analysis before in some of our previous studies. Sin is never private. If sin was private, then what Eve did should not have had any effect on Adam's race, right? What Adam did should not have affected you and I. But Adam did what he did in a split second. He did it because of his own choice. But you and I are victims of his choice, right? And so if God decides to judge Adam eternally for what he did, in his books, it is a fair judgment because the consequence of one man's sin is eternal, right? I don't know if you had that um, quote that says that there are three things that you cannot take back and one of it is the words that you say, right? <laughs> they should add to that list the sins that you commit. Only the blood of Jesus, right, can initiate a protocol of recovery and restoration. And again, the reason why um, God is highlighting this to us is to ensure that we are not deceived, you know, that nobody convinces us otherwise about the nature of God, right? But it's also to bring us to the place where we accept God's judgment today. Now, you see, God's judgment can be either constructive or destructive. Generally, God's judgment is constructive even when it destroys people. The reason that happens is so that sin can be eradicated like we've seen, right? In the life of the believer, the believer is not supposed to experience condemnation from God's judgment. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? That's not God's intention when he brings judgment into your life. God's intention is to bring discipline through judgment. And if you accept the discipline of God, then you will be preserved from condemnation. Like we said, when God deals with us, the first layer of his dealings with us is through his voice. You can go back and read Hebrews chapter 12 because it elaborates on this well. In Hebrews 12, the writer tells us that do not resist him who is speaking. You know, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, you know, that, that born with blackness and darkness and that everyone who touched it, you know, died. And there was so much physical. He said, you've not come to that kind of mountain, yet the intensity of what you have come to is not weaker than what it was in the time of Moses. He says that you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, so that you and I, by virtue of our inclusion in Christ, we are standing before God. And he says that, in our position in Christ, there is him who speaks, which is the Father. And he says, do not resist him who speaks. Do not harden your heart. Because that's the first way that God comes to us, through his speakings, through his utterances. Right? Because you might be asking yourself, looking at Jude and looking at the study, okay, who is even perfect, right? Who is going to stand? Who is going to make it? But God goes a long way to assure us in Scripture that there's a place where he makes his home, right? He says, if I find a man who, who, who humbles himself at, at my word, who trembles at my word, 
since that man, I will, I will dwell with him. That's where you will find me. You know, so that in a sense, if you make up your mind that, that the word of God is going to be my food, right? I will take him who speaks seriously. When the word of God comes into my space, I won't treat it as something optional that I can look at tomorrow. I will treat it with seriousness, with humility, with urgency. That humble state of heart towards God's word is your primary insulation from departing from faith. Right? So because that's the first line in which God tries to reach you. So if God sees danger in your path, I, I can assure you the first way he will try to warn you is through his voice. When we do not hearken to God's voice and we harden our heart, the only option God has is discipline. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 12, he, um, the writer of Hebrews says that, I think we should read it very quickly. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12 that, um, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraging your souls. And then in verse 5, he says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as son. My son, do not despise the chastening. The word chastening, there is discipline, right? The discipline of the Lord. Nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So that when the voice of God has failed to get to you, the only tool God has is his discipline. You know, has it happened to you before that? Ten people did one thing and they got away with it. And then you tried half of what they did. And then intense judgment came upon your space. <laughs> I don't know if I have any witness in the house. You know, intense. Yeah. Are you wondering? Uh -uh. Like, like, we like we speak to each other in exams. We show each other our notes and we mm -hmm. tell each other. How come that I just whispered A and now I'm facing all manner of flashback? <laughs> My son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord. You see, that judgment in the future that is terrible, the way to avoid the terribleness of that judgment is to submit yourself to it today. You know, when God speaks, not to harden your heart. I hope I was able to make some sense with that analogy. Any thoughts on this? A lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, it's important for us not to despise the judgment of God. Sometimes, Take a step back and look at the body of Christ. You know, when you hear that somebody fell into sin or somebody was thrown into prison for corruption, don't be in a hurry to, to castigate them and, and be a judge and say, Kai, these people. Use it as an opportunity to, to set your own heart and apply the lessons laid to your heart that, Kai, this is not the way to go. You know, because those judgments are for uh, good when you hear that Boris Johnson organized a party, you know, nobody was there in that party, but that party became the reason why he's no longer prime minister today. Instead of making fun of him, you lay it in your heart that even the things you do in secret can become the reason why you'll be disqualified from external positions. It is something to 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 face with 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 fear and trembling, and that's how we find grace. God delights in the humble. And if you look at these false teachers, their main characteristics is their pride. The fact that if you look at the way of Cain, for example, 
I'm not meeting up with God's standard. And instead of wrestling with it like Jacob, I decide to change it, you know, and to create, create a God in my own image, essentially, a God who does not punish sin. Okay, so as we close, Jesus has counsel for us, right? Our first line of defense, which we have hinted at already, but Jude expounds on it in verse 16 to verse 19. Can you read something? Okay, verse 16 says, These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remembering the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time, who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. Yeah, thank you, Sammy. So verse 19 is where all the <laughs> intense stuff in Jude ends. And from verse 20 next week, it gets lighter and the kind of applicable stuff that we all love in our teachings, right? Yeah. But again, you say that your first line of defense is to remember. And he's saying that this is what I want to leave us with as well. Is remember the words because in their case, for example, like Sammy mentioned earlier, the prosperity of apostates, of people who have rejected the true faith can sometimes serve as a contradiction to, to us believers, right? Where we, we seem to be doing things according to the prescription of scripture and we seem to be failing, right? Certain people seem to be cutting corners and they have the numbers, they have to show. In those moments, he says, remember. And this, you know, points us to the, the nature and the goal of God's dealings with us, right? That the reason why God deals with us through discipline most of the time is that he wants to etch something in our memory, right? You know, he wants to etch something in our souls that will become a prized, personal, intimate possession. You know, as so we're having this Bible study now, everything that is happening is going into your head. And if your heart is open, which is why we're trying to pray at the beginning, it's also going into your heart. But it is very possible that you forget. In fact, it's very likely actually that you forget, except if God walks you through a process, either in prayer as you wrestle with God in prayer, or through a natural process that will etch these things in your heart. So many times God will bring dealings into our lives. It's important for us to separate what is an attack from Satan from what is a dealing from God. And many times what is genuinely an attack from Satan is allowed by God so that we can come into a certain kind of knowledge. And so that when we walk through that process, will come out having something that is deeper than head knowledge you know that's that's the story of job essentially right satan was allowed space around him and satan wrecked havoc in his life and job went from self-righteousness to god righteousness and by the time he came out of that season he says i've heard about you before but now i've seen you and i repent in dust and ashes that process that he walked through 
produced riches, spiritual riches in his soul that could never make him vulnerable to Satan again. And James, like we saw in our last book, summarizing the life of Job, says that the thing that God wanted to show us in the life of Job is the end of Job. That's what it says in James 5 verse 11, that you see the end of the Lord in Job's story. He says, indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have seen, you have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Friends, no matter what you are going through, this is the end of the Lord. The problem is that many people get to the end before the Lord gets to the end, you know. We, we either lose heart, we get discouraged, we conclude that God doesn't, you know, heal anymore, for example, or God doesn't, um, or, God, or that God condones immorality, for example. We often get to the end before God can reach his end. But this is the end of the Lord to show us that he's compassionate and to show us that he's merciful. So that when we endure process, we can come out with a knowledge that is etched in our spirit, that is etched in our souls, that nothing on the external can shake. That's what it means to remember. This kind of remember is not memory verse from Sunday school. No, it's a, it's a remembering that is an organic experience, right? I don't know if you have been through the fire before and you wanted to give up and then you decided to spend some hours in prayer. And as you pressed into God, he brought things to your remembrance. And those things that he brought to your remembrance injected life into your soul, injected life into your being. There are times when everything you know in your head will fail. And in those moments, you will need to remember. You will need to remember. It says, remember the words which were spoken. Remember the words which were spoken. Paul was charging Timothy. And he said to him, remember that Jesus is, is raised from the dead. You know, when he told him that in the midst of your warfare, I know that you have sickness in your body, you're taking some medication for it, and, and you have shyness problems, and it's as though the task that God has called you to do is overwhelming. But remember that Jesus was raised from the dead according to my gospel. He was not telling him to remember a dogma or a doctrine. He was telling him to remember an experience, that the time came when he encountered the resurrected Jesus, and that experience left an imprint on his soul. A time came when he endured process and it bettered revelation in his heart. And he says, remember that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's, that's the first line of defense for the believer. He says, remember. Remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles. Right? Because in this case, this is supposed to quench the conversation around false teachers that you might look at false teachers and you're like, where's God in all this? You know, can't you just remove them from the scene? He says, remember. Remember. The remembrance of God can deliver you from sens sensual affections because he says that these are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. <laughs> Do you realize that all of us are sensual people? Right? We have feelings. We have emotions, we have thoughts, you know. But what stands us out is that we are not dominated by those 
by our sensual realities, but we, but we seek after Christ. He's our unique goal, right? We press on. If we don't do that, if we don't continue to press on, it's inevitable that we're going to become slaves of our sensuality. And that's why in Peter's letter that we read earlier, Second Peter, he concludes the letter by telling them that your defense against apostasy is to grow in grace, which is what we're going to see next week. Okay? And it's, my, it's a desire of my heart that God will send us light. This is how God brings judgment. You know, it's possible that someone can be struggling with something. I don't know what it is. Pornography, for example. And you have prayed, fasted, they've laid hands on you. What you need is light. And when I say light, I don't mean a verse that is stuck in your head. Much more than that, you need the judgment of God to shine through and to once and for all break through that stronghold. The moment that happens to you, it can never be the same. It does something into your soul. And whatever it is that each of us, or wherever it is that each of us, that is my prayer that the Spirit of God will send us light. Indeed, that um, we will have so much light that there will be no place for pride in our lives. That we will continually be humble before God and that our humility before God will lead to our exalting and will ensure that we are kept in the name of Jesus. Amen.